as we come closer to our Holy Week, the Passion of Christ, His death on Friday, His resurrection on Sunday, the texts that we are reading carry us on that journey as well. This morning's passage from the Gospel according to John come to us as Jesus' last public words before his crucifixion. He speaks more, but after this passage, only to his disciples or only to those accusers. May God open up to us an understanding of this word. I'll be reading from the message by Eugene Peterson, so if you're reading along, it won't follow exactly as I am sharing with you. The 12th chapter, verses 20 through 36. There were some Greeks in town who had come up to worship at the feast. They approached Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. Sir, we want to see Jesus. Can you help us? Philip went and told Andrew, his brother, and Andrew and Philip together told Jesus. Jesus answered, Time's up. My hour has come. The time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Listen carefully. Unless a grain of wheat is buried in the ground, dead to the world, it is never any more than a grain of wheat. But if it is buried, it sprouts and reproduces itself many times over. In the same way, anyone who holds on to life, just as it is, destroys that life. But if you let it go, reckless in your love, you'll have it forever, real and eternal. If anyone wants to serve me, then follow me. Then you'll be where I am, ready to serve at a moment's notice. The Father will honor and reward anyone who serves me. Right now I am storm-tossed. My heart is troubled. And what am I going to say? Father, get me out of this? No. This is why I came in the first place. I'll say, Father, put your glory on display. A voice came out of the sky. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The listening crowd said, Thunder. Others said, An angel spoke to him. Jesus said, The voice didn't come for me, but for you. At this moment, the world is in crisis. Now Satan, the ruler of this world, will be thrown out. And I, as I am lifted up from the earth, will attract everyone to me and gather them around me. He put it this way to show how he was going to be put to death. Voices from the crowd answered, We heard from God's law that the Messiah lasts forever. How can it be necessary, as you put it, that the Son of Man be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Jesus said, For a brief time still, the light is among you. Walk by the light you have so darkness does not destroy you. If you walk in darkness, you do not know what you're doing or where you're going. As you have the light, believe in the light 
Then the light will be within you and shining through your lives. You'll be children of light. This is the word of the Lord. When I lived in Atlanta 15 years ago or so, Bishop Desmond Tutu was in town for almost a year seeking treatment at Emory Clinic for cancer. While it was the trouble he had to carry, for us it was a joy to have him in town for he would accept invitations to preach and to come and talk to folk in large venues and smaller venues. I was lucky enough to sit with him at table a couple of times and to have personal conversation with him. Regardless of the size of the venue, whenever Bishop Tutu would walk into the room, the whole complexion of the space would change, as if light was flooding in. You may be over in the corner talking to someone about March Madness, and when he comes in, all of a sudden the conversation changes and you're talking about the madness in our world and how we can serve to, to, to fix it. You may be talking about the new car you bought, but when, when Bishop Tutu comes in, next thing you know you're talking about your children or what your purpose is. It was almost as if his light, which entered the space, infected the rest of us. In this morning's passage, some Greek-seeking Christians, Jews, are looking for Jesus. John wants us to know that they are Greeks and that they use the Greek name of the disciples, Philip and Andrew, because John wants us to know that the whole world, which then was thought to be Greek, was seeking Jesus at the same time. All the world was there to find Jesus, looking for him. And so they came to, to Philip and Andrew and said, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Who doesn't? In fact, on the inside of a lot of pulpits around the country, that's stapled in for the preacher to see. We wish to see Jesus to remind the preacher of why you're here and that our job is to help you see Jesus again in a new way. We wish to see Jesus, they ask, which is exactly why John wrote his gospel in the first place. He is dealing with a community of faith who too wanted to see Jesus, and they're all over the map of who Jesus was. Some thought that he was completely human and not divine, a great prophet. Others thought that he was completely divine and not human. The presence of God made real in all places. But John writes his gospel in order to paint for us the picture of this man named Jesus who is full of unlimited love and unconditional compassion, especially to the outcasts. John wants us to know that Jesus, the picture of Jesus, is that he is just like us in every way, fully human, that he struggles over the same things we struggle with, My heart is troubled, he said. He struggles over suffering and death, especially his own suffering and death. That he feels deeply, that he weeps, that he even gets angry. He is human. And John also wants us to understand that he is divine. 
in the sense that the portrait that Jesus brings to us is the portrait of God. That what Jesus looks like, God looks like. The Word made flesh dwelling among us, fully human and fully divine. And this picture, this painting, this portrait that that John artistically paints so beautifully, he does so with the primary pigments of human life. Blue for transcendence, wonder and awe. Red for passion and humanity and blood and suffering and yellow for earth, for stars, for light, for sun. And not only that, he brushes this portrait with a finely pointed instrument so that there is a stroke of metaphor here and a a swipe of symbol there so that only in a poetic way do we get a sense of who this Jesus is. It's, It's a finely, finely pinned, painted metaphor of Jesus such as what we find in this morning's passage. John has almost completely finished his composition. The only thing that is left for John is the crucifixion, the hour where Jesus will be finally unveiled and the full portrait of Jesus will be made real. And in that moment, the full portrait of God will be glorified. Where Jesus is, John says, God is. And what Jesus looks like, John says, God looks like. And what is Jesus' true nature? God's true nature. You know, there's a line in Forrest Gump that goes, stupid is as stupid does. And That is especially true because good is as good does, but not always. In the case of Jesus, it is true, good is as God does. And what God has done, of course, is to manifest God's self in this living human being, Jesus, and then give that self up for the sake of our knowing how much we are loved. Catch that. Not for the sake that God will be satisfied because there has been given another blood offering, but given up so that we will finally come to understand how much we are truly loved no matter what. That's the picture of God we have in Jesus. And that's what it means to be glorified. And he says it over and over again, so that God may be glorified, so that God may be glorified. And what that means for John is, On the cross, that's where God is most glorified. Go figure. But for us, stupid is or good is is not necessarily the truth. How we act illumines our nature some, but not always. Too often the darkness in the world and in our lives overshadows the way we live, and the way we act. We give in to the powers of hate 
or tribal ideology or religion. We start defining ourselves in political ways. We connect ourselves to different groups more righteous than other groups so that we can feel better about ourselves. We gather around us money and power and fame thinking that that will set us apart. Those are the powers of darkness, Jesus says. And we do that, but we, and, and we do that, but, but we, it's not really who we are, you see. For who we are looks like Jesus. We were created in the image of God, and who we are at the deepest sense is not that facade or pretense that we cover ourselves with. Underneath is the pentimento. That's the original painting that was painting that bleeds through the new painting that has crusted over and hardened. And it takes, it takes the sharp knife of suffering and life to keep cutting away at that, at that outside layer, and it and it takes the soft love, the cleaning agent of the blood of Christ to wash it free so that the real self, the real image of God's self can find vision. And it looks like Jesus. I was listening to WJCT a couple of weeks ago, and they were interviewing a man uh, whose name was Arno Michaelis. So I listened to the story. I learned that for seven years, Arno Michaelis was a neo-Nazi skinhead, and his body was tattooed with neo-Nazi marks, one of which was a swastika on his middle finger that he would like to lift up and point to people, and then close his fist and hit him in the head. Something changed him. His boss, who was Jewish, continued to love him and show compassion even though he knew of his, of his race-baiting hatred. His colleague, who was lesbian, did the same, and another colleague, who was black. Three people in his workplace kept chipping away, chipping away at that facade until one Saturday morning... He woke up to go to McDonald's, something he did every week to treat himself because every meal for the rest of the week were Ramo noodles to save money so that he could afford liquor to drink. But on Saturday morning, he had enough money to go to McDonald's, and as he reached for the door to open it, he looked in, and there was this black woman standing at the counter with this unbelievable bright smile on her face welcoming him in and he knew her from before and he thought oh no I don't want her to see my swastika all of a sudden so he stuck his hand in his pocket and he went up to the counter and ordered his food and they are chatting and and she gives him the food and then gives him the change and he pulls his hand out of his pocket and she sees the swastika and she looks at him in the eye and says, what is that on your hand? That's not who you are. You're better than that. And that was the moment, you see, when he received the incredible love of God through this woman standing at the counter, not by abuse or judgment, 
but by a word of unbelievable grace and love that held him accountable to that image of God in him. Later, he would show himself singing to a band, to middle schoolers, when he was like that neo-Nazi, because the rest of his life became a point of talking people of hatred out of it and become so that they could become more Christ-like. He was showing his video of singing to a bunch of uh, wild partiers at this uh, middle school uh, classroom, and a student said, um, uh, are you going to be embarrassed by this video? And, and, and he said, I'm humiliated by it. He replied, or she replied, were you drunk in that video? Yeah, I was always drunk. Were your parents into racist stuff? No, Michaela said. Your mama should have whipped you good. Another student raised her hand. Do you feel you're going to be a racist again? Excuse the French. Hell no. Being a racist stinks. Then the teacher asked the class a question. The best way to combat hate is what? There was silence. Come on, he urged. The best way to combat hate is what? Love, said the students. There you go. Love. What wondrous love is this, O my soul, O my soul. What wondrous love is this, O my soul, we sang last week. That calls the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul. You wish to see Jesus lifted up on the cross, the ultimate picture of God's unconditional compassion and love. For neo-Nazis and for the poor victims they bully. It is thought that the light of this divine love cast down from the cross changes the whole of life. And John says it. For our world is in crisis, he says, but now that Jesus is about to be glorified, Satan is in retreat. This love of God on the cross breaks the powers of darkness and death and evil. Now the whole world is illuminated by this love. And the brittle facade of our own darkness has been crumbled so that the new part of us can shine forth. I saw a picture. I don't like to use props a lot because usually something goes wrong. But I saw a picture about, I don't know, 10 years ago of a field out in the middle of nowhere where 1,300 fluorescent lights were planted in the ground underneath those giant power transmission lines that are on those huge skeletal towers. You know the ones I'm talking about. And it was at night or dusk, and every single one of those fluorescent lights was gleaming as light as Luke Walker's Skywalker. Luke Skywalker's, what do you call it? Wand. Lightsaber. Thank you. And I thought, how did they get extension cords to every single one of those lights? 
And what I discovered is that the electromagnetic fallout from those lines was enough to illumine the fluorescent lights that stood under them, which is exactly the metaphor of what it means for us to stand under the cross. The love of God that rings down upon us, illumines us, and we become lights unto the world. Jesus said it at the end, the light is with you for a little longer. Walk while you have the light so that the darkness may not overtake you. And if you walk in the darkness, you do not know where you're going. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become children of light. This morning we will ordain and install our new officers for the coming three-year period. And I have to say that this is probably the best charge I have ever heard, not only to the officers in this church, but to each one of us. Walk in the light so that we may become children of light so that the light of Christ can shine through all of us in all that we do.